The following Truth Barista podcast is a High Beam Ministry production. Why is biblical prophecy important? Biblical prophecy is important because basically it makes up 30% of the Bible. And that's huge because if you look at 39 books of the Old Testament, 17 of them are prophetic books. If you look at the Gospels, big portions, look at the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, look at the whole book of Revelation. These are prophetic books. Jesus talked about prophecy. Paul talked a lot about prophecy in his epistles. So one out of every four verses basically is, is prophecy so prophecy is very important because it's important in the bible and not only that but prophecy reveals the beginning and the end so if you want to know what happened and what's going to happen you look at the prophetic words of christ and the apostles and prophets in the bible the bible prophecy also introduces us to the divine revelation so biblical prophecy is a big portion of the bible therefore it should be an important process of learning for christians in general Welcome to the Airzats Coffee Shop. This is Jay, your truth barista, and I'm serving up a steamy cup of God's truth for the average Joe. You can catch me and this podcast on my websites, truthbarista.com, all one word, truthbarista.com, and highbeamministry.com. That's H-I-G-H-B-E-A-M ministry.com, as in car high beam. We're shining the light of God's truth on the road ahead. Truth Barista, it has been so much fun to go over the notes that you've handed out. And man, last week was so good. I mean, we talked about markers and we've talked about signs. And, and we're end get times and, things oh, crashing yeah, into it. earth and cataclysm and fun stuff like that. And I was wondering why more pastors and churches don't get into this stuff. And of course, the common response has been, well, it's too controversial. It's not safe enough. Exactly. That's what they're saying. It's not safe. safe to talk about prophecy because we don't know for sure and we're really struggling with this and it's too hard to understand. And I get that. I understand that. Yes. But we can't play it safe, right? Well, Dennis Prager, who I love, had just a short little clip on safety or the word safe. I'd like to play that. It relates to where we're going Okay, you got your phone there all set up, ready to go? Uh, I do. Here we go. Okay, let her rip. Some words need to be said at the outset about the word safe. So we have a meme now up at PragerU, and it says, until it's safe means never. This notion of the pursuit of safe is life-suppressing. It's true for your, your own individual life, and it is true for the life of a society. I have never led my life on the basis of until it's safe. And I don't take ridiculous risks. I, I don't believe in that. I wear a seatbelt every time I'm in a car. That's a ridiculous risk. Because if you're in a bad accident, the chances are overwhelming that a seatbelt can save your life. Unnecessary risks are pointless. But in order to lead a full life, you are not on earth to be safe. You are on earth to lead a full life. I went to 130 countries. Some of them were not super safe. And anyway, nothing is super safe. What does it mean safe? Safe doesn't exist. There are degrees of safety, clearly. But anyway, that's not the point. I never think about that. That's part of the reason I've led such a rich life. 
is because I don't think what's safe. Now, wasn't that good? That is fantastic. So what what was your takeaway on that? Well, my takeaway was, you know, we live in a life of risk. We live between the risks, Mm -hmm. right? And for people to walk around thinking that safety, 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 well, you know something? You can't live in a bubble. But you know why people want it safe? Why? Because we were built to be in an environment where safety is the main factor. Shall I explain briefly? Yeah. Okay, go back to the Garden of Eden, okay? You've got Adam and Eve there, and basically their God-given job is to bring the world under control, expand the boundaries of Eden, and have bebes to kind of fill up the whole kingdom of God. Bebes? Lots of bebes, okay? But their job was to do God's work of subduing the earth and bringing under God's rule and to fill it with humanity, and as they did so, the boundaries of Eden would expand. But think of this. God said, of all of everything, all the trees in the garden you may eat. Now, we kind of gloss over that. Think about this. They never had to worry about food insecurity. Everything they needed was there for them. So there was no insecurity. There was absolute security. In fact, it says they were naked. Okay, this is not some prurient thing. And I think that's called naked. Yeah, they were naked. Well, the fact that they were naked is actually inferring to the fact that they were vulnerable and didn't care. To be naked in the Bible, in a biblical sense, is to be vulnerable, to be exposed. The fact that they were naked and they didn't care meant they were absolutely vulnerable, but they were absolutely secure, so they didn't care. Okay, once they fell, they were basically saying to God, you know, this is your rule about not eating the tree. Well, we're making our own rules now. And we're going to do this our way. We're going to have babies our way. We're going to, in other words, have our sex drive our way. We're going to rule the earth our way. And at the fall, they said, God, get lost. We're doing it our way. And God says, oh, you want to do it your way? Okay. Well, Eve, you can see how having babies now is going to be painful, which kind of implies maybe it wasn't before the fall. But here's the significant thing. He said to Adam, now you are going to live by the sweat of your brow. You're going to produce your own food by the sweat of your brow. And a lot of people go, oh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to be hard labor, a life at hard labor, right? For both Adam and Eve. Eve, get it? Hard labor? <laughs> That's so funny. Anyway, it's going to be a life at hard labor. But I found in my research that that phrase, sweat of your brow, is actually a very ancient idiom that has to do with fear, not necessarily effort. And we understand that today. So you're facing a big test at Big Brain University (laughs) around the corner, right? Oh, great. And you're telling me about how bad this test is going to be. And I look at you and I say, hey, Larry, just don't sweat it. There you go. It's about fear, not about effort. So... Mankind has this desire to rule the world, but because of the fear, they use that desire to rule the world, to control the world around them, to eliminate insecurity. And as a result of that, humanity is trapped in a never-ending cycle of trying to control everything around them in such a way that we get absolute security. In other words, we are safe. So some people do things for safety's sake. On a grand scale, 
You can get one person or a group of people trying to rule the world around them and they start building cities and they start building kingdoms and empires and that brings us right into what we're talking about. That's very good. I mean, what I've been listening to you and I've been listening for, you know, a couple of weeks we've been in this topic and I realize there's nothing safe in it. I mean, this prophecy stuff, how can God be safe? <laughs> I mean, really? No, God is not safe in this whole topic is not a safe topic, but nobody said it's. we're supposed to live in safety. But that's, we live in a world of risk. That's right, but that's why people don't want to talk about it. Right. It points in a direction that may be a little risky. And because it's risky, um, some people get into the study of eschatology, the end time things, and they get into eschatophobia. <laughs> they don't want to talk about the end times things because it's too scary even if they understood it, right? But on the flip side, you get people that throw all caution to the wind and start going after all sorts of weird stuff and they get into eschatomania, okay? Just an obsessive compulsion with end time stuff. I think we should look, as Christians, we should really work hard and do a good job looking at prophecy and then take a wait and see attitude. Like I always say to people, and you've heard me say it around here at mm -hmm. the coffee shop, it's like, I'll let you know when we get there. Let's put it this way. Prophecy is best judged in retrospect. It's like Peter said, this is that which Joel said, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is evidence of God's kingdom coming to earth. Well, in that part, he was kind of partially wrong. He was right in that the Holy Spirit coming to earth on the day of Pentecost is the beginning of God's kingdom in people. But Joel is talking about God's kingdom coming fully on earth. That's Joel chapter 2. So Peter is right, but he had the short version of it. He was looking through the telescope of prophecy that crunches all the time markers together, whereas from our perspective, we can see over 2,000 years, oh, there's that event back there. Now, 2,000 years later, it appears we are heading toward the markers of the end. See, now that word, markers, is one of the most helpful aspects of understanding prophecy. You talked about markers and signs, and that is such a great image. Yeah. So can you explain those just briefly before we move on? Okay. As you and I talked about, we've all taken the drive through the west, and you see the Rocky Mountains coming toward you. So as we're coming toward and see the little bumps in the distance, you're going, aha, mountains. That is a sign that I am in Colorado. No, you're not in Colorado. You may still still be in Nebraska or some other state, right? You are seeing the signs of that state by the signs of the mountains. You don't know you're in that state until you hit the border marker that says, welcome to Colorado. So that's the difference. From a biblical standpoint, we have signs all over the places. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Anyway, we see those kinds of things. But many of the prophecy scholars out there are mistaking signs with markers. Not all. Not all of the scholars, but many of them mistake signs as markers. So when a sign happens, such as a famine or a world war, they say, ah, this is that which Jesus spoke of. Well, he did speak of it as a sign. He did not speak of it as a marker. And that has really helped me understand biblical prophecy a bit more. Now, I'm just giving you my perspective. I'll let you know when we get there. Nice. Okay? So, Well, before we get into the marker of where we're going today, we should have a couple of signs of some good java. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java, and it loves me. Coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Truth Barista, you know, we're living in such turbulent times with this coronavirus. What advice would you have for our audience? Well, the first thing, you have to not give in to fear, right? I mean, you listened to a recent Dennis Prager. Yes, and he was saying some wonderful things. Don't waste this time, but contact your friends by phone or by Skype and talk to them and your family. Do things that you haven't done for years. Do things together as a family in your own home, but do something productive and don't say and mope and get depressed by what you hear on the news. So on the negative side, don't give in to fear, right? That means we have to limit our consumption of the news, consumption of social media. Now, we don't want to be uninformed. We want to be informed. But man, talk about Debbie Downers and stay away from the people who are being uber sensational about this and just stoking the fires. We don't need this. It is what it is, okay? It's it's like a pandemic, like a flu-type pandemic, although it has different characteristics. But... And this is the point I'd like to make, too, is admittedly and apparently this has a high infection rate. So if we lower the possibility of infection, we'll have a lower potential for spread and that will lower the severe number of cases and even deaths and lower the strain on the hospitals so that they can keep pace and give proper care for those who need it. So really, the positive thing is this is a great opportunity, like you said, to stay at home, stay in the neighborhood. I've seen a lot of people walking their dogs, hanging out with their kids gardening already doing some fantastic things and you know it's the most important thing for us you gotta stay in the coffee and you gotta stay in the word what a great combination thanks for that encouragement truth barista and don't forget to listen to the past episodes of the truth barista great box Up this program to bring you a special report. Woohoo! I love the truth, Barista Bart, as long as I have my donut. All right. Ooh, look at I have a sign of Java here before <laughs> me. You know, there's nothing like a good, just flat out, just cup of coffee. You oh, know, I none know of that. the none of the fancy schmancy stuff. Oh yeah. You know something that's kind of like the markers. Right. Sometimes you just need a basic marker and just kind of put the signs off to the side That's for now. Right. Okay. Where did I get these markers from? Well, I did a study on the basic endpoint and end time stuff from scripture. How do we know? You go to Daniel and repeatedly in Daniel, when he gets these visions and visitations and words from the Lord and words from angels, these beings keep telling him, this is for the end. This is a sign of the end. This is the end. There will be a time of distress such as never been before on on the face of the earth. We know by those that he is not talking about the near future for Daniel or the mid future. He's talking about the end of the far future. Then you go to the Olivet Discourse, which is a, actually it's an end time teaching by Jesus because his disciples ask a question about signs. So he goes, let me give you the signs, but I'm going to give you the marker. And he repeats Daniel's markers. 
So we have to go back to Daniel. We'll hit those, and then we'll go to the Jesus teaching on the Mount of Olives. You had said in one of the teachings in previous weeks that the last days began in the first century. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. This is what God says. Well, if God poured out his spirit at Pentecost, that was the beginning of the last days. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years when you put Peter's declaration together with Joel. However, we're talking about the end times of the last day time period. So it's the last days we've been in, but there's the end End, days. Right, and that's what Daniel talks about. Now, I'm not going to get into the scriptures. I'm going to refer to the chapters, and I'll let you study them. But if you go through Daniel chapter 2, here's the big thing. Nebuchadnezzar gets the statue of the various mixtures in there, the components, elements of metal and things like this. And what's really interesting is this is a procession of empires. Remember I told you about Adam and Eve and humanity setting up these controls? Control structures? Well, empires are control structures on a macro scale. And basically, God shows Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? From this point forward, there will be a procession of these dominions, these kingdoms. And at the end of this procession, I'm going to step in. I'm going to dismantle human dominion apart from me on earth. I will be the king and my kingdom will reign on the earth. And it'll be as it was in Eden with mankind running the earth, but under God's rule. That's the point of Daniel chapter 2's statue. And the significance of it is a stone not cut from hands will come out of heaven and smash the final kingdom, which is the toes, the ten toes, of iron and clay mixed. You jump to chapter 7, and you have a earthly, an earthly, and a heavenly viewpoint. On earth, you have the procession of kingdoms again. In heaven, you see God's representative, his king, step forward to start his kingdom. And yet at the same time on earth, you have this one little horn... <laughs> Okay, A horn in scripture is authority. It often represents a ruler or a king. So you have this one ruler on earth who's really kind of little, but he thinks he's a big shot. And he talks against God and exalts himself against God. But then again, God's representative comes down, boom, done, and God's kingdom starts. It parallels the statue. Are you with me? Absolutely. Good. Good. And by the way, verses 19 through 27 in Daniel 7 are the signs. Now, Daniel 8 is where we start getting some tighter markers. The first marker is the procession of empires. And it says it's going to be... Babylon, then it's going to be Medo-Persia, then it's going to be Greece, then it's going to be another empire. Some people say Roman. In my opinion, it's Islamic, and I've got a reason for that. And the final empire is a rebirthed Roman or Islamic empire. Okay, so that's a marker, a rebirthed empire, out of which this one ruler will come. When you get to Daniel chapter 8, he basically says to Daniel, okay, Greece is going to conquer the Medo-Persian empire, and out of this Greek empire, four rulers will arise. Out of those line of four rulers... And those were four generals, right? Right. It was Alexander the Great conquered this huge territory. He dies. His four generals take over, cut the kingdom into four parts. And basically, there's two parts in play. There's the northern king, and he's based in Syria. And you have the southern Greek king, and he's based in Egypt. And these two realms fight back and forth. And lo and behold, Israel's on the land bridge between the two. So Israel keeps getting stepped on as these armies keep going back and forth. Isn't it wonderful to be Israel? (laughs) Okay. So out of this, he says, a little horn will arise. That should be a aha 
moment. Because out of this group, and it either means at this time or sometime in this lineage of kings, one ruler will arise. And basically, he says, verse 13, he will stop a sacrifice and he will overthrow the sanctuary. Those are two markers. Now, did that happen? Yes. There was a king named Antiochus IV, and his name nickname was Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the manifestation of God. That's <laughs> kind of arrogant, don't you think? <laughs> I'm Antiochus, and I'm the manifestation of God. Okay, well, they called him Epimanes or Epimames, which means Antiochus the nutcase. Perfect, <laughs> yeah. perfect. Okay, so he opposed God. He made a covenant with the people, uh, with the Jews of the day, and everything was pretty good until there was a bit of an uprising, and he storms back into Israel at about 167, and he does some really horrible things. He prohibits Judaism. He says, if you're caught with a Torah scroll, the Torah scroll is going to be burned. You're going to be killed. If you circumcise your kid, you get to wear your dead kid around your neck. I mean, he's horrible. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He desecrates the temple. He stopped the daily sacrifice. And he's not talking about all of the sacrifices that occurred during the day, he was talking about the tamid, the daily sacrifice that's made at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. that opens and closes the sacrificial day. Got that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so he stops that. He erects a statue of Zeus, an image in the temple courts. He desolates the temple mount, and he proclaims himself to be God, Epiphanes. Okay, well, he's eventually overthrown. So this is what you need to know is as the person is describing this to Daniel. In verse 19, he says, this is for the end, Daniel. Now, people say, well, Antiochus, he, he took care of this, so those markers don't mean anything anymore. He goes, no, because number one, did the end come in 165? No. No. Did God's kingdom get set up for a permanency on earth? No. Okay, so now Antiochus is simply a picture of what is to come at the end. Like a foreshadowing? Yes, that perfect word for it. That's what I was looking for. He is a foreshadowing of the end markers to come. So we have to keep that in mind. And it also says that Antiochus's work with Israel at that time, his work on Israel, was a final three-year period. So while there's a covenant for a time period, there's a shorter period within that where things get really hairy. And this is where things go really, really bad. Verse 23 says there will be a rise of a little horn, but in verse 25, he will be shattered and destroyed. Those are markers, okay? Jump to Daniel chapter 9. He gives us time markers, not just a person, not just actions. So in Daniel 9, he says, between now, Daniel, and the end, there will be 70 weeks of years. Do you understand what that means? Well, 70 weeks would be 490 years. 490 years. Okay, so he's talking about a 490-year period. But you go, wait a minute, from Daniel's day, 490 years forward, that, you know, that nothing happened. Well, this is where he, now he breaks it up. He says, from the point, Daniel, because you're in Babylon and Israel, Jerusalem has been destroyed, from the point that the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem to the time that Messiah shows up will be 69 weeks of years. So it's 490 
minus 7 years, that's 483 years. The time between the decree that went forth and Jesus' appearance was 483 years. Then he says at the end, he says, Messiah, the anointed one, will be cut off. So that cutting off, as we said before, is a confirmation that you have gone through the 69 weeks of years. Then it says, and then things are just kind of, kind of coast. It's like, what? Okay, so now you get into Daniel chapter 10. The angel says to Daniel, I have come to help you understand. This is 10 verse 14. I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the last days for the vision refers to those days. And he jumps into chapter 11. What happens in chapter 11? It's this battle between, in the near future, the Syrian Greek king versus the Egyptian king and all of their successors fighting back and forth. And then right in the middle of this whole description, it flips and, it's, and it begins to refer to Antiochus IV in verse 21. In verse 30 through 31, he attacks Israel, and again, you get the markers. He abolishes the tamid, the single sacrifice, open and close sacrifice, and the abomination of desolation. That's the second time those markers have been put out there. Verse 36, it then flips to the end. And even though Antiochus, Antiochus IV, did this, it says, until the time of wrath is completed because what has been decreed will be accomplished, and verse 40 says, at the time of the end. So while Antiochus did it, he was a foreshadowing of what's to come. And in Daniel chapter 12, we get another marker. Here we go. Verse 1. There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. So let me ask you a question. People say, well, Antiochus did this or the Romans did this. Okay. Have there been times since that time that have been worse than the times leading up to Antiochus and the Romans? Since then, you mean? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. World War One, World two. War Two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The huge wars, the huge pestilence, the huge famines, the Black Plague. Yeah. Okay. Those things are foreshadowing. We haven't even gotten to the big show yet. If anything is sobering in the scriptures, that's sobering. So... The time of distress, according to Daniel 12, marks the final countdown of three and a half years within that final week. And in verse 11 through 12, it says, From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who waits for and reaches the 1335 days. We'll talk about numbers sometime in the future because they're significant, but it's roughly a three and a half year period. This is the third time in Daniel where you get the major marker. The major marker of daily sacrifice is abolished, the abomination that desolates the Temple Mount is done, and during that time, that last three and a half year period, it will be an ugly time of distress. Those are the markers. Well, the first two markers happened because there was a temple. Right. Now, there's a third one, which you just referenced, but there's no temple. Aha. See, that's the key. Now, let me play with this a little bit with you, because we kind of talked about this. When we get to the Olivet Discourse, Jesus kind of provokes a conversation with his disciples, and we may have to pick this up next week. He looks, and everybody is marveling at Herod's temple in Jesus' day. Now, let's say it's roughly around 30 AD. 
And they're walking through the temple courts and they're going, wow, what a magnificent building, like a bunch of rubes walking through New York City, right? <laughs> oh, these buildings, they're really huge. This is really something. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you know, boys, there's a time coming when this whole temple thing, totally destroyed. In fact, there's not even going to be one stone sitting on another. It's going to be that destroyed. Do you think that got the disciples' attention? Absolutely. Okay, so they're mulling this. They keep walking and then they go across the Kidron Valley. So they're now sitting on the mountain that's east of Jerusalem. They're overlooking it and the biggest structure you're going to see there is the temple. And the boys, you kind of get a feeling we're talking amongst themselves and they look at Jesus and go, okay, Jesus, we get this whole kingdom of God thing coming in and we believe you're that Messiah who's going to do this. So what is the sign of your return and in setting up his kingdom? And what is going to be the sign of this destruction that you were talking about, the end? And Jesus goes, good question, boys. Let me tell you. And so now you get into Matthew 24, and it's the Olivet Discourse. You'll find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, so the question is, tell us when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? If you understand Daniel, you know their question. When are the things that Daniel was talking about going to happen? Okay, so Jesus then gives them a near future an interim, and a far future. He gives them the signs that are going to happen during those three time periods, and he gives them the markers as they go. Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, verse 4 in Matthew 24, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, they will deceive many, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. So he's talking about signs. He's not talking markers. For nation will rise against nation, Kingdom against kingdom, there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. Signs, not markers. And verse 8, he says, all these events, signs, are just the beginning of the labor pains. Isn't that a nice word? Well, it's, it's a foreshadowing again. It's the introduction. Exactly. So we're getting close to the end of our Bible study time here. So let me end this by talking about women's pregnancy. Because I'm not a women's, but I'm married to a women's. And I've had four kids, so I've watched this process. Oh, yeah. The most exciting thing is when a woman is pregnant, as she begins to develop, the uterus begins to contract occasionally and goes through these things called Braxton Hicks contractions. The purpose of it is to prepare the womb for birth. And this actually happens some months before it actually the event actually occurs. Okay, so you're in the Braxton Hicks contractions. All of a sudden, it seems like a woman will cross a threshold and those Braxton Hicks contractions start getting a little tougher. You're in the beginning beginning of the labor pains. Is the baby ready to be born? Nope. The uterus is preparing at that point for the actual event. You've gone from the near future Braxton Hicks to the distant future labor pains. Jesus is saying, see all these things here? These are just the beginning. <laughs> if you think this is rough, wait till you get into full labor, boys. This is going to get really tough. Okay, so this is what the Jews call these end time signs as the labor pains of Messiah. They also call this the footsteps of the Messiah. When these things happen, look up for your redemption draws near. So the Jews understand this. The Christians understand it with different words. Jesus is saying in a very Jewish way to his disciples, when you see all this stuff happening on earth, don't freak out. It's just the beginning of the labor pains. 
which he's saying is there's full labor coming in the future. And when it hits, you'd better be prepared. Ooh, truth barista, this is really risky stuff. <laughs> you don't hear a lot of this from a pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> well, next week we're going to get really get into it, right? Yes, we will complete this section. And then let's play with some of the big questions that people talk about relative to the end times. Other things they think are markers right. that are just signs. Things like the rapture. Ooh. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of these other things. Okay, can't wait. This is Jay, your Truth Barista. Thanks for listening to the Truth Barista podcast. <laughs>